son of man that is the son of Adam. Um, and uh, but she fails. And so finally, when we come to the New Testament, Jesus is described as a priest, as a king, as a prophet, uh, especially in the Gospels, but elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, because he finally does what Adam should have done. He's described, indeed, as true Israel, because Israel was an Adamic figure. And that's why Jesus, and it helps us greatly to understand why he is uh, called Son of God and Son of Man. Um, because functionally, that's uh, what he is as an Adamic figure, as the last Adam. Of course, he is the Son of God. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. Have you ever noticed how biblical theology is essential to a proper understanding of systematic theology? So many times as we approach uh, doctrines of the faith, our presuppositions about the storyline of Scripture and how we interpret that storyline come to play and what conclusions we come to. Uh, The story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is not one that is made up so much of parts, but those parts are united to present to the reader one grand narrative uh, with many themes. And within that narrative are even types that point us toward their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. I am pleased to have with me today... Uh, Greg Beale, who holds the J. Gresham Machen Chair of New Testament and is Professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. He is going to be a tremendous asset to us on this podcast as we think through the importance of biblical theology and some of the ways we should or shouldn't understand biblical theology today. Greg Beal is an author that many of our listeners will be familiar with. Uh, He holds a PhD from the University of Cambridge. He is the author of books like A New Testament Biblical Theology, uh, his commentary on Revelation in the New International Greek Text Commentary Series, as well as books like We Become What We Worship, a book that uh, has helped me, certainly, when it comes to understanding the nature of idolatry from Genesis to Revelation. He's also the author of a book that you have not seen yet. It's forthcoming in 2019 in April. It's a commentary on Colossians and Philemon in the Baker Exegetical Commentary series uh, and, and you will be able to pick that up and see some of his work there on these important letters. Greg, thank you for joining me to discuss biblical theology. Yes, good to be here. You know, when we talk about biblical theology, there, of course, is a, a history to it, uh, a history that stretches back a long ways. Uh, we could even look to the way that biblical theology has has changed over the centuries. For example, since the Enlightenment, there's been been some biblical scholars who 
have dismissed biblical theology or have looked at it as not feasible or uh, a, a discipline that is is looked upon with suspicion. Uh, part of the reason for this is because they don't believe there is any type of inherent unity to the scripture, to the storyline as a whole, and presupposed is is a de, even a denial at times that there is one divine author behind uh, each book of the Bible, let alone the the entire Bible uh, and canon. You know, as you look at the the history of biblical theology, in what ways does say doctrines like the inspiration of Scripture? Uh, as well, you know, when you think in terms of hermeneutics, uh, divine authorial intent across the canon, what ways do these ensure that there is a unity from Genesis to Revelation, one that, that even makes the, the discipline you've devoted your life to, biblical theology, possible? Well, um, I mean, there, there's one definition of biblical theology that really is just that Biblical theology is descriptive, which means that you just, um, the modern-day scholar describes what different people at different uh, times and places in the Bible, what they believed, um, and there's no uh, necessary notion uh, of the inspiration of Scripture, which means there's not one author, and so it's a study of different biblical theologies in the Bible that may or uh, may not be compatible, and, um, and and all you can do is describe that, that it's not uh, something that is relatable to uh, the modern believer or the modern church today. It's just a purely descriptive process, and uh, uh, James Barr, for example, held that kind of view of biblical theology. Um, so... <clears throat> Um, now, if there's a, if one holds to the inspiration of Scripture that all Scriptures God breathed, then by uh, definition, at that point, if, if if all of Scripture is inspired, then you have one divine author behind it, and uh, and you make a second presupposition that God does not contradict Himself, so that um, uh, then then. Those, those two notions of inspiration and uh, the idea that God does not contradict himself uh, produce uh, the, the possibility of, of doing biblical theology that now can be related to today and to the church, because God's word is uh, a word for all times and all places. Of course, there are um, uh, places uh, uh, that we don't directly carry over um, the... Uh, meaning of the text, for example, you know, um, law against uh, boiling uh, a kid in its mother's milk, we don't carry that over to today, but the underlying principle of idolatry that surrounds that command does apply to today. So um, so at, at any rate, this, this does give us, inspiration gives us the possibility for um, seeing how um, there's a consistent logical development and growth of thought from the early portions of Scripture to the later portions of Scripture. In contrast to someone like James Barr or, or a no, number of others who, who would not see that, that type of unity, I mean, you've 
written extensively on biblical theology. How, how do you define biblical theology in a way that that does um, bring out that that unity? And, yeah. and and how does how would you say that your your definition of biblical theology is is even evangelical? Well, um, my own definition of biblical theology is really not my own definition. Um, I build on um, your hardest boss's definition of biblical theology taught at Princeton from, oh, I don't know, around 1882, I believe, to the late 1930s, I think. And um, uh, he, he said this, and then this definition really is is basically pretty current among um, evangelicals today working in the field, um, like Don Carson or Stephen Wellam or uh, Tom Schreiner and others, uh, uh, Desmond Alexander. And that, that definition is, is, is this, and not everybody might state it in this, with these precise words, but the idea is that the biblical theology is the exhibition of um, the organic development of supernatural revelation uh, in all of its continuity and its multiformity. So uh, Voss is well known for this illustration that an idea early in the Bible is like a seed, and then as later scripture in the Old Testament is written, that seed develops, it grows. When it comes to the New Testament, it becomes, say, an, an apple tree, and then at the consummation, at the very end of the age, uh, there are the apples and the final harvest, so that you, so, so that, that the ideas that are developed in biblical theology, since there is one author, there's continuity. And yet you can see that there are different forms of that same idea. Uh, I mean, a seed does not look like an apple tree. So you have to exegete very clearly to explain uh, ideologically how, how you go from a conceptual seed to a conceptual apple tree, if you will. So, um, so that's the idea, the, the idea that um, revelation develops um, uh, there, there's certain things that don't carry over. For example, a physical temple, I don't think, carries over to today. I think there's a uh, the Christ and the Church of the Temple, of the, and, and, and the Church is the Temple and the Spirit. Um, I don't think all of the Old Testament law carries over to today. Um, so there, there, there's certain discontinuities, but um, generally I think there's more continuity. Now, now some people will emphasize in that definition of biblical theology, the idea of a storyline like Tom Wright. But I think Tom Wright actually would fit pretty well in, into the general definition that, that I gave, though he's always concerned about the story of Israel, putting that template on on the Bible, which which I agree with. He, he just tends to mention it perhaps a, a tad bit more. Um, and then there are those who um, want to... Um, mentioned the idea of how relevant biblical theology is for the church. Uh, and they're always mentioning that. Well, I completely agree with that. Um, 
and I, I would say besides, uh, so all, uh, you know, those are just different emphases in, in, in biblical theology. Um, my, my own emphasis is, is 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 to put all of that really together and 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 and, and to focus also on how later scripture interprets early earlier scripture literarily by quotation and allusion especially later parts of the Old Testament and then the New Testament. Because what's often been done in biblical theology is you're tracing themes from earlier parts to later parts of the Old on into the New. And, and that is more subjective. Uh, if you can isolate actual literary illusions, then you're on a more objective basis. And I think there's a lot of work to be done in that area. It's being done. Um, it's begun to be done 20, 25 years ago, begin to, there began to be a focus on that. The use of the Old Testament and the Old, for example, a lot of work's being done on that. One of my colleagues here at Westminster, a guy by the name of Jonathan Gibson, uh, uh, wrote his dissertation at Cambridge, published it on the use of the Old Testament in Malachi, for example. And and we we have uh, uh, another student here at Westminster working on the use of the Old Testament in Zephaniah. There's been good work on the use of the Old Testament in Joel and, and so on. So... Um, that's also a matter of emphasis. Do you trace do you trace the concepts only thematically, or can you trace them indeed literarily? That's a more exegetical tracing. So, for example, Genesis one twenty eight, that is just found throughout the Old Testament on into the New. In fact, when I was at Wheaton, two students wrote their dissertations on various aspects of how Genesis one twenty eight is used elsewhere in the Old Testament and, and many a number more dissertations could be written on just that very topic itself. Now when and you yourself have done uh, written a number of articles and, and even books on the use of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Right. As you in, in your mentioning, you know, but different Old Testament books, even specific texts and how fruitful those can be uh, to, to this type of biblical theology. When we look to the New Testament authors, whether it's Jesus or the apostles or others, uh, how are they using, or maybe we could even talk about some of their hermeneutical assumptions here, how are they using the Old Testament in a way that is not, uh, as some might claim, uh, you know, some might claim, well, they're using the Old Testament in a way that they could because they're inspired, but that's really illegitimate. Uh, but I'm guessing you are going to argue that uh, actually they're using the Old Testament in a way that's legitimate and that, that even brings out some of the, uh, whether it's themes or, or even the, the, the redemptive nature of the narrative itself. How, how do they do that, and, and is that a legitimate hermeneutical move on their part? Well, there are... Um, um, it's a very good question, and uh, I think probably the best place to begin, because you talk, I think you mentioned hermeneutical assumptions. I think that there are four or five hermeneutical, or what we might call interpretative presuppositions, that the New Testament writers have when they're interpreting the Old Testament. In other words, they have these four or five lenses through which they're looking at the Old Testament. And if you don't affirm these presuppositions, then I think it would actually be hard to affirm the inspiration of Scripture, or the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, and I think those uh, presuppositions um, are uh, this notion of, of uh, 
corporate solidarity or representation that you found throughout the Old Testament. Uh, uh, for example, the most well-known one is that Adam represents all of humanity. Christ represents redemptive, uh, redeemed humanity. Um, but fathers represent their families, so Achan is stoned because he sinned. His family was considered descending too because he represented them, so he's they're, they're, they're punished. Prophets represent their uh, nations. Uh, kings represent their nations. If they, as David, if, if he sins, the nation is punished uh, along with him, and vice versa. Uh, obedience brings blessing. Um, and then that, that leads to a second presupposition, applying the first one really, is that Christ um, is the true Israel. And all those who um, are identified with him and all those he represents, all those who are in union with him, become true Israel. Now that presupposition right there becomes exceedingly crucial because you have prophecies of the Old Testament that are applied. That is, they're seen as becoming fulfilled in Gentiles, uh, especially in a predominantly Gentile uh, church, covenant community. And... Um, so on the surface of it, that looks like a, a misuse of Scripture. How can you say a prophecy about uh, the redemption of Israel uh, can be fulfilled among Gentiles? And um, uh, that looks like a misuse of Scripture. But if, um, if Jesus is true Israel, and all those he represents are true Israel, then it all of a sudden falls into place. Yeah, of course, uh, you can have uh, the Gentiles fulfilling those prophecies about Israel. Um, and, and, and likewise, you, you have prophecies about um, uh, the nation that are seen as fulfilled in the individual Messiah, Jesus. Well, how can that be? Well, again, because what's true of the group is true of the individual. What's true of the individual is true of the group. And so uh, prophecy uh, about the nation can be fulfilled in Jesus because he epitomizes the nation. He sums up the nation in himself. So right there with those with that presupposition... Um, uh, you're able to see how uh, New Testament writers and Jesus can uh, use Scripture in a way that on the surface seems um, indeed wrong, but in fact uh, is not. Um, another presupposition that's uh, absolutely uh, crucial is um, that history is unified by a wise and sovereign plan. So that earlier point, uh, earlier parts are designed to point to later parts. Well, if that's true, then it makes complete sense why um, Matthew two fifteen, for example, uh, when the Holy Family goes from Israel into Egypt and, and later back out again, it says this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Um, um, out of Egypt have I called my son. That's from Hosea 11.1, 1, which refers to the Exodus. It's a historical reflection. And so some, some even evangelical scholars in the 20th century said that's just a wrong use of Scripture because that's not a prophecy in Hosea. It is a historical reflection. But in fact, if history points and is designed to point to later parts, then this coming out of um, Egypt on Israel's part was a pointer to Christ coming out uh, of Egypt uh, at, at that at that point. In fact, if you go back to Hosea itself, you find that throughout Hosea, he talks in many places, a number of places, about the first Exodus, and a number of places about an eschatological Exodus uh, in the language of coming out of Egypt. 
uh, in both cases. And so Jose himself was aware of this typological connection. Matthew's just following the typology of Hosea. So there the importance of the use of the Old Testament and the Old in the case of Hosea helps us understand um, understand Matthew. Um, another presupposition is that the latter days have begun, this notion of already and not yet um, eschatology. And um, um, the final presupposition would be that um, um, building on that fourth point that Christ is, is the goal toward which the Old Testament pointed and is the key to interpreting the earlier portions of the Old Testament. So um, those are all very, very important uh, presuppositions. And that fourth presupposition actually is a presupposition, that is the third one, that, that history is unified, points, uh, earlier parts point to the latter, is, is, uh, is really what typology is, and um, that earlier events and persons point to later ones. And then that too, you see, when you get when you get a historical event, and all of a sudden New Testament author says, "Oh, this is a fulfillment of that prophecy." Well, that sounds like a wrong understanding. How can hmm. how can uh, 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 an event be fulfilled in the New Testament? You, don't you have to have a direct verbal prophecy? Well, no, you don't. If uh, history is prophecy. We've been talking to Greg Beale about the nature of biblical theology, but let's take a break and hear from one of our sponsors. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry context. Come be a part of one of the fastest-growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging Word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today. We're back from our break, and we're ready to continue our conversation with Greg Beal about biblical theology and its significance. Now, you've mentioned out of all of those, and each of those, I would encourage our listeners to explore each and every one of those. Uh, they're, they're so key to, to rightly understanding how to transition from uh, Old to New Covenant. One of them that you mentioned has to do, you used the phrase, the latter days have begun. And uh, this one right. uh, is fascinating because here we see that Biblical theology is is very consciously characterized by eschatology, and and maybe this is a, a way of thinking about biblical theology that could even be foreign to even someone in the academy, maybe especially those in the church. Uh, would you flesh this out some? How, how do you trace the story of the Bible, or or even some of these literary uh, uh, these literary cues that you've mentioned? How do you trace those with an eye to to this inaugurated end time context, or as you just called it, this these latter days, and and seeing that they've already begun? Yes. Um, well, I think the key is trying to understand how the Bible begins in Genesis one to three, and the notion that um, um, Adam is, is basically commanded to. Uh, 
the tree is sort of the uh, epitome uh, of what he is not to do. I think positively, quite frankly, he is to um, uh, fulfill the commission of Genesis 1.28. I think Genesis 2 is a development of Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we, we get an explicit mandate some think it's a cultural mandate. I think it's both cultural and spiritual, and that is the you know where it says God blessed them and uh, said rule and subdue, be fruitful and increase, and, uh, and I'm abbreviating this and, and fill the earth. And so, <clears throat> or what was what was Adam to fill the earth with? Well, with image bearers, those who reflect the image of God. So to fill the earth is not just filling the earth with uh, cultural workers. It's uh, filling the earth with those in the divine image, reflecting God's image and his glory. So the earth becomes filled with God's glory if that command's carried out. <clears throat> and um, so I think that Adam, um, uh, in some circles we call this a covenant of works. There's some debate about it, but uh, I've, I've tried to argue for it in some depth in my New Testament biblical theology early on in that book. But I think that uh, Adam should have, if he had been obedient uh, to God, and, and uh, with, with respect to both Genesis one twenty eight, and then uh, especially as that begins to be uh, focused in on, on that negative command in Genesis two, um, if he had uh, obeyed, if he had been faithful, um, then I think uh, what would have happened to him is he would have um, um, passed into glory. He would have been rewarded with glory, as First Corinthians fifteen says, Christ is. In his, his resurrection ascension, he's, he's, he's the glorified last Adam. That's, that's the goal to which Adam should have, um, have passed. Um, you know, where 1 Corinthians um, 15 says that the first Adam uh, was uh, earthy, the last Adam was a life-giving spirit. Um, so, uh, and, and I think what would have happened is, I think he would have had a renewal of the, uh, of the earth at that point, so that Adam himself would have been co- become incorruptible, as would the environment around him. Uh, and of course, I think that he would have defeated, uh, if he'd been faithful, uh, according to Genesis 1, I think he would have defeated uh, the serpent, uh, 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 Satan. Um, I, I think uh, it's, it's plausible to understand that the tree, uh, uh, the tree of discerning good and evil. Um, that phrase, discerning good and evil, is used of kings, uh, for example, elsewhere in Scripture, who judge, and um, people who, who, when they come to a certain age uh, of adulthood, they have the ability to judge uh, between good and, and evil and become uh, soldiers. So that. Uh, Adam should have gone to that tree of judgment and at that point cast out, declared judgment on, uh, on Satan. Um, and, and I believe God would have judged him. So, you know, if Adam had uh, defeated the serpent in that way, then, then, of course, the third thing that would have happened is there would have been no threat of evil from then on. And, of course, the famous statement, if he'd, uh, if he'd been faithful, he would have eaten of the um, a tree of life. Um, and I think he, he would have been finally been given complete rest. So, so there are these eschatological realities. There are about five that I just mentioned, and um, uh, and so I think what we can say is, is it's, it's a, a principle. Uh, so the idea is that 
uh, eschatology precedes soteriology. That is, Adam would have inherited all of these eschatological uh, rewards without sin ever having come into the picture. And so um, what that means is that uh, um, you, you never would have needed a sacrifice for sin um, in that case. Of course, God's plan uh, would be that uh, there would be a need because uh, Adam would not fulfill uh, this, this co- these covenantal obligations. And so uh, when he fails, you then get um, a restart, and uh, you begin to have uh, uh, kings and prophets and priests described with Adamic characteristics and traits because Adam himself was a king and a priest and a prophet. And so, uh, for example, uh, you, you get Noah described with uh, all of these Adamic traits, uh, uh, coming into a new creation with the ark, uh, resting on dry land, the waters have been divided. And um, <clears throat> But uh, Noah himself uh, is uh, disobedient. He, he does not achieve what... Um, the first Adam should have achieved, and so we go to uh, other other figures, and, and they begin to be described in Adamic ways. Israel itself, uh, um, uh, and her kings, is, is described uh, with with Adamic traits. Uh, Israel is given the commission from Genesis one twenty eight, um, and uh, that, that that's put on her shoulders. Uh, that's why she's called the son of God, because Adam was a son of God. That's why she's called the son of man, that is the son of Adam. Um, and uh, But she fails. And so finally, when we come to the New Testament, Jesus is described as a priest, as a king, as a prophet, uh, especially in the Gospels, but elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, because he finally does what Adam should have done. He's described, indeed, as true Israel, because Israel was an Adamic figure. And that's why Jesus, and it helps us greatly to understand why he is uh, called Son of God and Son of Man, Um, because functionally that's uh, what he is as an Adamic figure, as the last Adam. Of course, he is the Son of God in a way that Adam would never have been, and that is he's uh, uh, ontologically um, uh, akin to God. He is he is God's Son, the second person of the Trinity, but he's also functionally an obedient Son. So um, this is uh, uh, once you have the fall, uh, then, then, then you have the eschatological rewards delayed until one who would come. So all of the Old Testament is looking towards uh, these eschatological rewards, and when these kings, these prophets, these priests, Israel as a nation, when they fail in their Adamic obligation, they become pointers, they become foreshadowings, they become typological of uh, one who would finally come and do what Adam should have done. Now, you've mentioned, the assumed throughout everything you've just said, is the importance of typology. And you've mentioned this earlier. And, and I think one example you gave was the way that Christ is the true Israel. And so when we look back at the Old Testament, for example, uh, it's not just a particular individual or even a particular group like Israel as a nation, 
It could even be an event itself that is typological and is pointing us forward to the true Israel to come, uh, foreshadowing this true Israel. Right. That's that's certainly the case, uh, as you've said, when we talk about what it means for Christ to be the true Israel. Of course, there's other typological uh, themes throughout Scripture. Uh, one that you have written on in various places is the way that temple uh, temple is used right. across redemptive history. Right. Now, f- for those who are reading through the Scriptures from beginning to end, Usually, when they think of temple, they immediately go uh, to uh, the temple itself under Solomon. Maybe, maybe before that, with with the tabernacle during in the wilderness. Uh, but given what you've just said, if there is a typological framework here, then could it be the case that uh, temple is actually something that is is a, a, a type of Christ to come? And, and, and would you comment on this? How, how then does this make sense of Christ saying things like, he, he is, you know, tear this temple down and, and I will rebuild it? Is it appropriate to then say that Christ is the true temple, as you've said uh, about him being the true Israel? Yes, I think so. And again, this comes back to Genesis. I think that uh, the Garden of Eden was um, the first sanctuary. Um, And in fact, Ezekiel 28 explicitly says that the Garden of Eden had sanctuaries in it, as Israel's temple had sanctuaries in it. Uh, Because there was a holy of holies, there was a holy place, and along the sides of the holy place, in the, in the first temple, there were all kinds of different rooms. And so, so you've got sanctuaries. So, so uh, Eden is a sanctuary, as explicitly um, it is said to be in Ezekiel. And so uh, probably Adam is a priest who, who uh, uh, works and serves in that sanctuary. Um, I mean, in the ancient Near East, you had temples. And what did you do with uh, what were in temples? And every temple was an image of the god. So Adam, uh, Genesis 2.15, said he's placed into the Garden of Eden, set into the Garden of Eden, um, and um, he uh, uh, he's the image of God. It's appropriate then. It makes sense. So you, you, what do you do with images? You put them in temples. But he's the living image of God. All these other images were dead, uh, dead images. And uh, that, that he is... Uh, uh, priest serving in a temple is again apparent from Ezekiel 28 where it has all these jewels that are on the body of, of this figure who is cast out and I don't think it's Satan I think that this is Adam um, the uh, the jewels this is another reuse of scripture it comes from uh, Exodus 28 where all the jewels uh, on, on the breast uh, plate of the high priest are listed and those are for the most part are listed in uh, for this figure in Eden and uh, Exodus, uh, sorry, Ezekiel 28. So, um, uh, in fact, the very language of God in Genesis 2.15, putting Adam into the garden, he's, he's, he's put in there um, to serve in it and to guard. And um, uh, when those two Hebrew words are used together, uh, they either refer uh, elsewhere in the Bible and in the Pentateuch to uh, Israelite worship, or the other half of the time, to priests who serve in the temple. And um, the 
fact that uh, uh, when Adam's cast out, the, the cherubim take over his role of guarding uh, uh, suggests that further. And uh, in fact, uh, priests later in the scriptures, Ezra and Nehemiah, for example, they they're called guarders. Uh, they they guard the temple so nothing unclean would come into the temple. Um, they're, they're, uh, the temples are often called sacred wards, guarding places. So um, likewise, the lampstand in the later temple probably was a, a, a recollection of um, the Tree of Life, uh, which, um, if you remember, uh, the lampstand was a tree. Uh, I believe it was a walnut tree, and uh, it was pictured as a tree. So, um, and Eden itself is on a mountain, water flows from it, it has an eastward-facing uh, entrance, and that's true of all the later temples in Israel. So, uh, long and short of it, in my book, The Temple of the Church's Mission, I argue from a number of angles that Eden was the first temple, that Adam was the first priest, Adam should have guarded the temple, he didn't, he's cast out, so then he Again, you have to have an Adam who comes, who serves as a priest in God's temple. And, of course, what is the essence of God's temple? It's, it's the very revelatory presence of God, so that when Christ comes, he's not only a priest, but at the same time he is uh, itself the temple, because um, uh, the revelatory presence of God is broken out from the Holy of Holies in Christ. As John one fourteen says, uh, the Word became flesh, and we beheld and, and tabernacled among us. Uh, uh, that is a temple uh, verb, tabernacle among us, and we beheld his glory. Where do you behold glory? In the temple. And this is why, as you mentioned in John 2, that uh, Jesus sees his resurrection as the rebuilding of um, of the temple, and we in him, uh, uh, whom, whom we come to trust in him, he sends a spirit, and um, that spirit uh, builds us into the temple, as First Corinthians three says, "You're a temple of the Holy Spirit." When did that begin for the church? Well, when the flames of fire, the tongues of fire, descend upon the church. I think that's the commencement of the church being built into the temple. That phrase, "flames of fire," and uh, Isaiah five and thirty, um, and also when in early Judaism, one uh, Enoch fourteen as well, and elsewhere in Judaism. Flames of fire uh, uh, represent the uh, very tabernacling presence of God in his uh, heavenly temple. And so um, uh, so you get this continuity of um, uh, Christ being the temple and those who identify with him the temple. And then finally, at the end of the age, uh, that temple is, is finished. The whole new heavens and earth become sanctified, holy of holies. Um, that's a thumbnail sketch of my book, uh, which uh, there, there are a lot of holes there. That's just a very, very rough, abbreviated overview. We've been talking to Greg Beal, who is a professor of New Testament and biblical theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, what a great conversation this has been, helping us understand uh, various types throughout the Old Testament, but then also the unity that is present across the canon of Scripture a unity that is ultimately due to the divine author himself. I would encourage our listeners to pick up some of Greg Beale's books. Uh, he just mentioned The Temple and the Church's Mission, uh, which will help you understand 
the way that temple begins in in Genesis and uh, works its way all the way through to Christ and has that eschatological focus to it. You may also want to pick up his uh, a New Testament biblical theology, or if you want to see some of these details worked out in in a particular book, uh, perhaps his commentary on the book of Revelation itself. Greg, thank you for joining us on the Credo podcast. Okay. What a fruitful conversation this has been with Greg Beale. I love his definition of biblical theology, which he uh, said himself is he's indebted to uh, Gerhardus Voss. And Voss uh, argues that biblical theology is, is the exhibition of the organic development of supernatural revelation. The reason I like that definition so much is it refuses to separate biblical theology from revelation itself. That has certainly been a trend in the past uh, with certain uh, biblical scholars to, to separate or divorce biblical theology from the divine author himself. But if we are uh, doing biblical theology the way that scripture and the way that God intended, uh, we have to do so with a certain unity in place. And the unity of the storyline of scripture is one that stems from the divine author himself, uh, that the scriptures are not only inspired or, or breathed out by God, but uh, he has embedded his divine authorial intent, not just in one or two particular books, but across the whole canon of scripture, And it's this divine authorial intent that ensures that this story is one that leads to a certain end, a a telos, a goal. Uh, One of the ways we saw this in our conversation with Greg Beale was through uh, Beale's use of eschatology, the way that eschatology, as he said, precedes soteriology. And he gave us the example of Adam to demonstrate how uh, different types— from the Old Testament to the New Testament reveal that God is at work to bring about redemption. The the first Adam has failed, and yet, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the second Adam, or the last Adam, is faithful to obey where Adam was not. This conversation is an indication that Biblical theology is not separate from systematic theology. The, the two disciplines may be distinct from one another, but truly biblical theology is foundational to doing systematic theology. And likewise, if we don't uh, understand systematic theology properly, it may be because we haven't considered uh, the various ways that biblical theology can inform our theological conclusions. All that to say, biblical theology is essential for systematic theology, and the better we understand the storyline of Scripture and God's purpose throughout, the better we will come to theological theological conclusions that are consistent with the text God has given us. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith, and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.